0: It's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Dale Needham, uh, our speaker today. Uh, We're very fortunate Dr. Needham did not pursue his first career in accounting, uh, and instead uh, chose medicine, uh, having gone to medical school at uh, McMaster University in Hamilton, uh, and then doing both his residency and fellowship at the University of Toronto, where he worked with Margaret Herridge. Uh, He came to Baltimore uh, for his PhD at the Bloomberg School at Johns Hopkins. Uh, Since that time, uh, Dr. Needham has been an international uh, leader and expert on uh, better understanding outcomes after critical illness. Uh, In doing so, he's uh, had a a massive endeavor of uh, funded research in the area, established the uh, Center for Outcomes After Critical Illness and Surgery at Johns Hopkins. Uh, Currently, he is an associate professor in medicine as well as in physical medicine and rehabilitation, and we're very fortunate to have Dr. Needham speak with us today, thank you.
1: Okay, can you hear me okay? Great, I'm very happy to be here today as as well and speak to you about uh, a topic that I think really is of of growing importance to to, uh, the critical care audience, whether it be physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, rehab therapists. We really need to understand sort of what the consequences are in our ICU survivors. I've got no disclosures. And what I want to do is talk about the common long-term morbidities that ICU survivors face um, including some of the iatric sequelae of iatrogenic sequelae of the care that we provide to patients uh, in the ICU, as well as talking about uh, evidence-based methods for prevention and treatment of these uh, sequelae and morbidities. Uh, this isn't a new topic, um, and in fact, if we don't know about it, our patients or our family members are going to know about it. This was a, a page one story in the New York Times uh, back in 2009 that was talking about all the problems that survivors of critical illness have. Um, you know, so this is something that, that's reaching the mainstream media. This is the Wall Street Journal a couple of years after that, um, talking about cognitive problems. Um, you know, Diane Rehm a, a couple of years ago did an entire hour on delirium in the ICU. So we really need to, to better understand this or else our patients and families are going to take the lead and, uh, and know more about it than us. Um, I'm going to start with a, with a patient case. Um, this is a patient from, um, from Baltimore that was in one of my research studies. He wasn't a patient here or at Johns Hopkins, he was at a, a community hospital. Uh, a, a pretty healthy 39-year-old man, uh, specifically no psychiatric history, no drug use. Um, as you can see, his exercise regimen is, is quite remarkable. He's a, a pretty strong guy, a hard-working guy, four kids, um, and came in with pneumonia and acute lung injury, and had a pretty typical stay for somebody with acute lung injury. Um, in that his length of stay was, was 10 days. Uh, he got what throughout the country is pretty typical approach to sedation, was deeply sedated uh, for two of the days and then delirious for the remaining eight days of his ICU stay. He was on the um, hospital floor only six days before he was able to actually be discharged to home with um, outpatient follow-up for physical therapy and his primary care doctor. So um, many of us would think this is a big success story. We've saved this man's life, he was really sick, um, but I think it's important to kind of hear what he, um, what he perceives his uh, recovery process to be like. And uh, this video is probably about five minutes long, and it's sort of the first person of him describing um, what his uh, recovery process is like over the first year or so. I
2: had kind of difficult
1: dreams or delirium.
2: And it was a lot of different kind of dreams I would dream.
1: Um, I would
2: see like uh, blood circles. Um, in my in my dreams I would see uh kids running around with uh animal heads. Um, I even um, I won't be too drastic in what I'm about to say, but I even felt like we got a delta here like uh someone had, you know, clipped my penis off. And I even I, I felt all this stuff, man. I thought it was real. And um it was it was just kind of difficult going through that in your mind and, 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 and no one in there kind of understanding. They think I'm telling them these things and they're looking at me like I'm crazy. So um, for me, it was getting kind of frustrated. Uh, they said I was pretty difficult to handle at the time, knowing you know, me being intimidated or whatever, the, the fighting you were talking about. I just thought people were trying to do things to me at the time in my mind, you know, but um, and just trying to defend myself. I didn't know what was going on. So, you know, these were a lot of things that I that actually transpired in my mind the time. Tired and just worn out and weak. I couldn't walk no more than um maybe three to four. I live in a on a street where we have row homes, so I could probably walk about a length of maybe two row homes and I would be exhausted. But I did get physical therapists that would come and she would come and work with me and we would do as much as I can. But, you know, I started pushing her to try to push myself and I would try to do more than she would actually want me to do. But that was just me having, you know, grown up in a a sports culture and I'm kind of competitive and um, just kind of want to push myself back and want to go further. But I really couldn't do as much as I wanted to do at the time because my body wasn't just allowed. So, um, you know, with that, uh, I also had, you know, the, the mental issues because, um, you know, this, this, this process of, of near death was, was a situation where now I have to deal with always wondering if I'm going to get sick and now what's going to happen after that. So, you know, I was home for maybe, maybe, maybe a month, and I caught a cold, and I mean, I lost it. I mean, I'm back in the, not the ICU, but I'm back in the emergency room. You know, I forced my wife to take me, because mentally I'm thinking I'm going through this all over again. You know, I've been a, a grocery manager for years, and, um, you know, a lot of my, my you know, issues and, and things that I had to do was work, geared around paperwork and, um, you know, meeting deadlines and stuff like that. And, you know, I do meetings and I hold different kind of, uh, you know, uh, seminars at work when we got different vendors coming in and, uh, you know, I'll do different presentations. But the thing of it is, is that it was time for me to register my kid for school and it was just taking me forever to do an application that would probably take me roughly 20 minutes at the most that I would kind of have to sit down and I'm like I'm looking at one line and I get one line done and I just can't figure out why I can't get it done and I would leave it away and come back to it maybe you know 15 minutes later and try to do it again and I just couldn't get through it you know I had to get my wife to come and help me out and um, never had this ever happened to me before. Um, it went away um, I wasn't able to uh carry out you know my job performance wasn't up to par when I it was time for me to go back work. I couldn't be on my feet twenty four seven, monitor what's going on, um, keep up with the speed of the job at the time any longer. It was just too much for me at the time. So, you know, I had to kinda give that up and um take a lesser um job with the company. For a year. Yeah, I was off work for a year. Uh, and uh took a lot of time to, um, you know, invest in myself again, just trying to figure out, you know, am I going to ever be back normal in the way I was before? Um, and it just kind of gets to you when you're kind of person that used to constantly maybe finishing and doing maybe eight tasks a day that you may write down. Hey, I got these eight things I need to get done throughout the day, and you only can finish three. And you're kind of wondering why I can't get around to doing these things. Um, and this is pretty much the kind of guy I was before I went in the hospital. You know, I could go to work, go to the gym, you know, come home, help my kid with his homework, um, answer some emails, and uh, kind of keep it moving. But I couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it anymore to get it done like that. So it was taking me a long time to, to kind of get back on that path again. And, and, you know, I was kind of wondering why. But uh, we've been coming along a little better lately.
1: So clearly, this is ICU acquired, right? This man was a model of sort of fitness and, and physical, mental, cognitive problems, and he had a marked change after he'd been in the ICU. We can't say this was a frail old man and all of this was pre-existing. that, that That's not it. Um, and this is just an example. Of course, there are seas of patients like this, but he happens to be a pretty articulate guy and a model of somebody that was quite healthy beforehand. So I think he's a very good poster boy or spokesperson. So with that sort of uh, lead in, uh, he's done a very nice job of of helping us see the face of post-intensive care syndrome that I'm gonna be talking about today and using this as a springboard to summarize the most common uh, complications in terms of neuromuscular and physical functioning, psychiatric and, uh, and cognitive issues, quality of life, return to work and healthcare utilization, all of that in about half an hour. Uh, So we're just going to be skimming the surface uh, of this and skimming the surface of of the little that we know in terms of uh, evidence-based recommendations. And if you want more details, there's some of it in this this review article that we published a couple of years ago. So um, this whole term post-intensive care syndrome really came out of a Society of Critical Care Medicine task force um, that, that I was part of. Uh, in which we were summarizing what we understood about complications after critical illness, both for family members, but what I'm gonna concentrate on really is for survivors. And as as Garfield, our, our patient here, talked about, that he had mental health complications. In fact, he had a a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder from his ICU stay. He had cognitive complications. The man couldn't fill out this simple application for his son to return to school. And he clearly had physical complications. This man, we knew how much he bench-pressed before the ICU, and we knew how how much he could bench-press after the ICU and that recovery process. this is defined simply as, as newer worsening impairments in physical, cognitive, or mental health that arise after the ICU and persist beyond hospital discharge It's just a, a, simple, a simple definition. And the real purpose of this is to raise awareness and education because there are so many patients and family members, primary care doctors, uh, and other clinicians that really don't have any understanding that having been in the ICU can have profound long term impacts on people. As part of my research, I talk to patients, families, and clinicians from across the country, and it's so often um, that, that it's clear that they really have no understanding of this. The ICU is a simple black box um, that, that they're not really even, um, even registering, may create any of these sorts of problems. So in terms of background or epidemiology, the increasing need for mechanical ventilation is quite clear as the population ages. These are some some projections I did many years ago as part of my my, um, PhD research. And at the the same time that we're having this increasing demand for mechanical ventilation, we're having improving survival. And as a result, there's a growing pool of ICU survivors. If we look at elders that are discharged alive from the ICU alone, we're seeing 1.4 million uh, surviving per year. And it's not like they're back on their feet the next day. So we've got this growing pool of survivors. If Garfield has this many problems, what, what are the consequences for somebody that's, that's uh, not, not so robust prior to critical illness? They're clearly profound. These people aren't going back home because what they're bench pressing is very, very little. So that tiny loss in muscle strength is preventing them from returning from home to home, for instance. So the first outcome, and something that that ICU uh, researchers have concentrated on, of course, is mortality. Um, But now we're beginning to be interested in the mortality picture after patients leave leave the ICU as well. And clearly there's a large range, but a large proportion of our patients die even after they've survived their hospital stay, particularly people who are older, um, uh, are are going to be uh, at greater risk. A patients with more comorbidity, patients with a higher severity of illness, and there's at least three or four studies that also demonstrate the longer duration of delirium in the ICU that Garfield was talking about is associated with patients being more likely to be dead within six or 12 months after their critical illness. So that brain failure is a marker of, of an organ failure in the ICU, just like we'd expect a patient with kidney failure or, or severe ARDS to have a worse long-term outcome. So what do we know about interventions in the ICU that reduce long-term mortality? I think we're still discovering you know, that, that what we're doing every day in the ICU can have a profound long-term impact, and I've picked a couple of things here. Um, you know, from, from research that was done here at University of Maryland, Bayview VA, and, and Johns Hopkins Hospital, we followed a cohort of ARDS survivors that started off as 520 patients over five-year follow-up And a couple of years ago, we we looked at the association between them getting lung protective ventilation in the ICU, getting evidence-based intervention in the ICU, and found that it didn't just have a short-term benefit as we saw in the New England Journal publication from ARDSnet, in fact, there was a long-term benefit. Patients were more likely to be alive two years later if they got lung protective ventilation while they're in the ICU, with with pretty large absolute risk reduction, 8% absolute risk reduction. in the in, in mortality two years later if they got lung protective ventilation while they're in the ICU so that's one way to think about changing that that trajectory of long-term mortality. Also in the ABC trial that paired sedation interruption along with spontaneous breathing trials, we again saw a signal decrease, a substantial decrease in the risk of mortality over one year follow-up with with these evidence-based interventions in the ICU. So what we're doing every single day needs to be very important, thinking about our approaches to sedation and mechanical ventilation. But what about patients' functional outcomes? That, that's really what I'm going to focus on today. So patients may have muscle, uh, may have joint contractures, may have muscle weakness. And, and in particular, you know, we, we've heard lots about critical illness neuromyopathy, whether it's critical illness polyneuropathy or myopathy or the two together that we frequently call neuromyopathy. We know that these, these, these problems are incredibly common in a systematic review that we did of all the literature at the time where they had diagnosed patients with EMG nerve conduction studies, as well as physical exam, you know, about half of patients with these these important critical illnesses had evidence of critical illness neuromyopathy, and this was associated with prolonged duration of mechanical ventilation, prolonged stay in the ICU. So at a pathophysiologic level, these abnormalities are very common, and in patients that have critical illness polyneuropathy 90% of them still have abnormalities 5 years later based on the existing evidence that we have in addition to this i think we also need to be thinking about disuse atrophy the harm that happened to patients of just having them lay around in bed for most of their icu stay as happened with garfield who you know there was no thought of physical rehabilitation until he was out of the icu And I think that's really the low hanging fruit. That's the easiest modifiable risk factor, I think. And here a group from the UK um, has done a very nice job just in the last few months published in JAMA characterizing the skeletal muscle wasting that happens in critically ill patients. So in a subset of patients, they wanted to to really take a, a comprehensive approach to looking at what was happening to quadriceps muscles. They used ultrasounds, they used biopsy of muscle with histology as well as Um, complex biochemical analyses looking at protein balance. And what they saw in this really important and novel study were a few important things. They saw that on average, over the first 10 days in the ICU using ultrasound, patients lost 18% of their quadriceps muscle cross-sectional area. And patients that had multi-organ failure were much likely to have larger losses than those with, just say, um, Uh, lung failure on a ventilator without any problems with shock or or renal failure. And in fact, it's important to note that these losses start very early. Look at this, in all patients at day three, we've got losses, and if the patient is multi-organ failure, these losses were even larger. So so you may say, "Mm, I'm not so sure about muscle cross-sectional area. They have done validation work of this, but you may say, I'm not so interested in ultrasound. What did they find when they actually had muscle tissue? They had very similar findings. The cross-sectional area based on histology was decreased by 10% over that follow-up period in the ICU. And they had necrosis on those biopsies in about 50% of the samples. And when they looked at the biochemical analyses, they saw that over the first seven days, not surprisingly, patients had increased protein breakdown and had decreased protein synthesis. So there is net catabolism happening to our patients. And when they they tried to look at the role of nutrition, they found that there was not an association between, you know, if patients got more nutrition, they were less likely to be catabolic. In fact, they found the opposite association. So so clearly, I think that at least tells us we simply can't feed our patients out of this catabolism. We can't simply give them more calories and think that this problem's magically going to go away. I don't think it's that simple. I think we're seeing more and more nutrition studies that really are, are helping us understand that this is a very complex issue. So in summary, no matter how they sliced or diced their quadricep muscle analyses, whether it's ultrasound biopsy or looking at protein balance, there is clear evidence of early and rapid muscle wasting over the first week in the ICU for mechanically ventilated patients. And I think this is a very important finding for us to be thinking about and an important advance in the field in that this was done in critically ill patients and clearly is a very complex sort of undertaking to to, to pull all of these analyses off with, with consenting patients. And, and, but, you know, we, we have a good understanding of sort of muscle wasting, but how does that translate into weakness? How does that translate into to functional outcomes? Again, looking at the cohort of patients here from Baltimore, including a whole host of University of Maryland yes survivors, we, we want to answer those questions. And as I said, we serially followed patients over a five-year period, and, and Eddie Fan just recently published a couple of months ago sort of the two-year physical complications. And what I'm gonna present are a couple of figures here. Each of these figures are laid out the same. The dotted lines represent those patients, those survivors who have so-called ICU acquired weakness, meaning on physical examination, they have evidence of muscle weakness using a predefined definition and those with the solid lines didn't have so-called ICU-acquired muscle weakness. And this is looking at weakness in patients' arms and legs. So people with ICU-acquired weakness, if we were gonna measure their muscle strength using just simple hand-grip dynamometry, we see that, of course, those with weak arms and legs, those with ICU-acquired weakness, also have weaker grip strength. Um, They also have weaker respiratory muscle strength using maximum inspiratory pressure. But how does this translate into physical functioning? This is probably the first study that I can think of that looks at at objective measures of muscle strength, and it's a function on patient's physical functioning using the six-minute walk test. So those patients that had evidence of of ICU-acquired muscle weakness had substantially lower six-minute walk distances. And how about quality of life? This is an SF36 quality of life domain called the physical functioning domain, and we see that those with ICU-acquired weakness have markedly lower quality of life scores than those without ICU-acquired weakness. And this is the only measure that we could even attempt to measure prior to patient's ICU hospitalization. And of course, we can't figure out who's gonna get acute lung injury and rush around and try to administer this instrument, so the best that we can do is retrospectively ask survivors about this. So clearly there's gonna be risk of recall bias, but, but you know, I don't think the recall bias is gonna be this profound where, where we get the, the people without ICU-acquired weakness going from relatively normal uh, quality of life all the way down to only about 60% at, uh, at three months. And those with ICU-acquired weakness Um, their baseline quality of life that they recalled retrospectively um, was lower, but look at the dramatic drop that happened. So I think that provides a bit of signal along with things like what Garfield was saying, my life was going fine and now it's not going so fine, of, of really some of the impairments that are happening to people. So this ICU acquired weakness, this muscle weakness is important for patients. And in this paper, we want to ask the question, what might be associated with this muscle weakness? We thought that there'd be a whole lot of things that would be associated with, maybe it was neuromuscular blockers, steroids, maybe it had to do with sedation, nutrition, age, uh, uh, you know, functional comorbidity, all of these things. But in fact, when we looked at for what factors were consistently and significantly associated with decreases in muscle strength over two year follow-up, there was only two risk factors in this large multivariable model that that came out as significant. The first was age. Not surprisingly for each decade older a patient was less was more likely to have a relative decrease in muscle strength uh, across the two-year follow-up, but that's not a modifiable risk factor. The only other factor that was consistently significant was this one, duration of bed rest. how long were they in the ICU and not moving? And in fact, we found that across all of the time points, there was a statistically significant association of that duration of bed rest, even after adjusting for all these other factors with that relative decrease in muscle strength. So if each additional day of bed rest seemed to be associated with a 3%, 4%, 7% relative decrease in muscle strength all the way out to two years. So what we're doing to the patients every day in the ICU, I think does have a profound long lasting uh, effect on patients. And this is some signal along with other randomized trials that we need to be thinking about the harms of bed rest while our patients are in the ICU. So how does this weakness translate into things like physical functioning with activities of daily living? Very, very basic things. I always find these results shocking about how bad patients' ADLs are after after they've come out of the ICU. And this is in survivors. So right, the most frail patients didn't even get through the ICU stay. So we found that that a number of studies have found, for example, more than 50% of survivors have impairments in these basic ADLs and a third of them have severe impairments. In another study where patients had to be ventilated at least 48 hours, we see very high rates of impairment and severe impairments all the way out to 12 months, very very much related to, to the kind of prior slides. If we look at instrumental activities of daily living, higher level functions, not surprisingly, these impairments are even more common because we're challenging patients even further um, and if we look at our, our own cohort here from Baltimore, where we looked at new impairments in instrumental activities of daily living, we found that two-thirds of the cohort had new impairments, incident impairments happening after critical illness. And we also found, interestingly, that the head bones connected to the body bone. When we said, okay, what's associated with patients having new onset of physical impairments, um, we, we found that, that uh, depressive symptoms were clearly associated with patients subsequently developing physical impairments? And we asked that question because many of my colleagues were saying that they thought the association was the other way around. That patients commonly have depressive symptoms after critical illness because you know they become so weak and they get down in the dumps. But we couldn't find any evidence of association in that direction, we found it this way, just like a lot of the geriatric literature that, that patients um, are, have depressive symptoms and then go on and develop physical impairments. So if in fact, if we're recognizing and addressing patients' mental health issues, maybe there's an opportunity that their physical impairments may also improve, perhaps. So, so this is, this is a, a very important study. Uh, Amber Bernardo is the first author from the Blue Journal where they had a large cohort of patients that they followed serially over time so they could prospectively look at patients' ADLs and their mobility. Because they had this cohort of patients, they kept following them, and some of those patients happened to go into the ICU or happened to be hospitalized. So they had these prospective baseline assessments, and then they could say, okay, for those patients that went into the hospital or went into the ICU, how did things change? Um, and what, what's important to recognize is that patients that were hospitalized without critical illness, you know, they had some worsening in their ADLs and their mobility, but those that were critically ill had even worsening, uh, even greater decrements in their mobility and their activities of daily living. And these were only done in survivors, of course. So, so in fact, the decrements may have been even larger, but there may have been a survivor bias that didn't even allow them to detect those decrements a year later because the survivors had to to, to get all the way out to that one-year time point. So this paper, I think, is important because it had those prospective measurements saying that the impairments after the ICU were, in fact, new when it came to mobility and ADLs. And physical function with the six-minute walk test, I had alluded to that, and and some of the most common data from Margaret Harridge's study, where she looks at six-minute walk distances compared to normal values and and showed that there appears to be impairments all the way out to five years, although we don't have that pre-ICU baseline measurement. So for all of these physical complications, what, what do we know about prevention or treatment or management? Well, you know, maybe high blood sugars may be associated with, with abnormalities, at least with, with EMG measurements, um, but we know that intensive insulin therapy um, isn't really the, the approach to go. We're not running continuous infusions and getting very tight blood sugar control, but at least we need to be thinking about avoiding sort of what runaway high blood sugars. Um, you know, there may be some signals with corticosteroids and neuromuscular blockers, but it's not always, always um, consistent, although we just published a paper a few weeks ago in the Blue Journal looking at ARDS network survivors, and we did see an association there. So I think we at least need to be thinking about when is the appropriate indication for corticosteroids, and when we're appropriately giving them, talk about minimizing the dosing and the duration, because we know that there's vast heterogeneity in whether one attending uses it versus another, and what dose we sort of pick, and how long we use it. And where the strongest evidence is is about early physical rehabilitation in the ICU. And I I don't have time to go through all the trials, but, but there's a growing body of literature showing that when we start occupational and physical therapy and mobilization of patients early in their stay in the ICU, within a day or two, of mechanical ventilation, rather than waiting several days, rather than waiting maybe a week until patients are are extubated and they're looking more stable, by starting it early, our patients are likely to have better muscle strength, less physical impairment, and more likely to go home. So the important message there, what I'm really talking about most is, is this one randomized trial where they compared starting at day one or day two starting versus starting at about seven days, is if every day we sort of say, oh, the patient's too sick today. Oh, they've got to go to the OR. Oh, they need a CAT scan and a bronchoscopy. Oh, we don't have any PT staffing today. If we just keep saying that, it's not very long before we get to day seven and we're just starting it. Oh, we don't have staff on the weekend. There's two days right out the window. If we say this, we're all of a sudden gonna get to day seven and all of our patients are gonna look like this control group. As opposed to saying, we need to make this just as important as that, that CAT scan, that bronchoscopy, that bag of antibiotics, we really need to do this because when patients leave the hospital, they're not saying, Dale, I'm really glad you gave me that extra CAT scan, I feel so much better. You know, they're gonna be talking about things like their muscle wasting and their their inability to return to work. You know, these are universal themes in ICU survivors that Margaret Herridge really helped put on the, the map for all of us. So I think that there's lots of growing evidence around here and we really need to be thinking about. About putting that as a very high priority and expanding our multidisciplinary team to not just have nurses and doctors and nutritionists and respiratory therapists, but OTPT, speech physiatrists, um, neuromuscular neurologists. All of us need to be working together to make this happen. I'm going to change gears and talk about another arm of post-intensive care syndrome, talking about the mental health problems that our survivors have. We had done, there, there's not a lot of data around depressive symptoms, but we've done a systematic review looking at the studies that had happened, and at that time there'd been 15 studies in, that, that measured in ARDS survivors, 14 studies in, in general critically ill populations, and then our own work where we looked at at cumulative incidence of depressive symptoms. Here we found 40% of our ARDS survivors from Baltimore had had, um, clinically important depressive symptoms, um, which was consistent with with other studies that we saw. So, So what are some of the markers? Who may be the patients that we need to be most careful in thinking about depressive symptoms? Well, it seems like there's an association at least, patients that tend to have more sedation in the ICU are those who also are more likely to have depressive symptoms. We're not saying there's cause and effect there, but we're saying that may be a marker, somebody that that you maybe wanna be thinking about more carefully. Um, Patients that have lower blood sugars, uh, patients that have frank hypoglycemia, um, and importantly, patients that have pre-existing psychiatric uh, symptoms, whether it be depression, whether it be anxiety symptoms before the ICU, are more likely to have problems afterwards. And I think when you you put this in your mind and you start reading past medical histories, you'll find that a huge proportion of our patients coming into the ICU have mental health symptoms. They're on an SSRI, SSRI for depressive symptoms. They have some sort of anxiety disorder. You know, these things are incredibly common, and we need to be paying attention to them because they're a marker for the patients we should be especially focusing on afterwards. If we could have just got Garfield's anxiety and his PTSD improved a bit more, worked on his cognition, might he have got, got back to work well before a year? You know, a year off of work for this young, healthy guy that needed to provide for his four kids. Um, As well, patients like Garfield that are already talking about having traumatic or or disturbing memories of their ICU stay, if they're talking about that in the ICU or on the ward, there need to be alarm bells going off in your head because so many studies are consistently showing that patients expressing these things are having long-term psychiatric problems. Garfield truly believed that his penis had been cut off. The day I went to see him at the community hospital, he was like fighting the nurses because he thought the nurses were the ones that had done it to him. He was so frightened it took him a couple of days before he he finally asked the nurse to get out of the room so he could lift up the sheet to see if it was true. He believed that he was in a hospital somewhere far distant from Baltimore. If he could just come up with a couple thousand dollars, then they'd be able to reattach his penis. He believed that this is what was happening and this was what what healthcare providers were doing to him. Patients that are having these sorts of problems, we can't just be sweeping under the carpet. You know, we're going to, these patients are more likely to have these long-term complications. Post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. So again, we see that these are common in in one of our systematic reviews. We see that that across studies, you know, maybe a, a quarter or more patients have clinically important symptoms of PTSD. These have to be incident symptoms. You can't have PTSD from the ICU if you've never been in the ICU. All of these survey instruments are asking about these symptoms with respect to patients' critical illness. Um, And there there are signs that these symptoms may be long-lasting. One study showed that patients still had symptoms from the ICU eight years later and again based on another another publication from again the same Baltimore-based cohort here that included so many University of Maryland patients, we found that 35% of our survivors had clinically important PTSD symptoms, one in three and and you may say, oh, Dale, are these symptoms really important or not? Well, those that 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 scored as having clinically important symptoms were twice as likely to be taking psychiatric medications, and more than twice as likely to actually be seen a psychiatrist. I was shocked when I looked at how frequently these survivors were seeing psychiatrists, because I thought there'd be huge barriers to them accessing mental health. But but despite barriers, still lots of them are seeing psychiatrists. So these symptoms seem to have some sort of resonance, seems to have some sort of validity. And what are some of the risk factors for these PTSD symptoms? Again, that same theme. Patients who seem to require or get larger doses of sedation seem to be, be a red flag patients who have agitation, physical restraints, and again, these traumatic memories. These all need to be things that we're paying attention to. We need to be tweaking the way we think about our patients in the ICU, the way that we're caring for them with this new knowledge to identify the patients that are most likely to have these complications. Because if we're not identifying it, I can tell you that most of their primary care doctors are not identifying these things. I've talked to so many primary care doctors who said, you know, my patients come back and they tell me, oh, they're having thinking, they're kind of tired and weak, um, and they're, they're, they're feeling kind of anxious, and they say to me, but I did a CVC, I did a TSH, you know, all of the results are normal. I said, yeah, but did you examine their muscle strength? Did you uh, actually think about, about post-traumatic stress disorder? Did, did any sort of cognitive testing get done? Of course not. That's not the bread and butter of, of primary care. This is things that they don't even know about often when the patients go back to their primary care providers. So we need to be thinking about these things and thinking about them for our ward teams and our discharge notes and, and follow-up plans. So, so we need to be thinking about perhaps putting our patients in better touch with reality. If Garfield was awake for his ICU stay, maybe he wouldn't have thought his penis was cut off. You know, he might have said, oh, the suctioning's uncomfortable, the endotracheal tube's not feeling so great, but he might not have believed that the nurses were cutting off his penis and might not have been confined to bed and and had no access to mobilization or rehabilitation until he got out to the floor 10 days later, remembering that JAMA study that I talked about with the loss of muscle um, cross-sectional area over the first 10 days of almost 20%. What else can we do for for PTSD? Well, there's one randomized trial, as well as a a number of other studies, talking about ICU diaries. A very simple intervention where typically ICU nurses and family members write, typically in a paper journal at the bedside, about what's happening to patients in the ICU, trying to, to lay out the reality in lay language around what's happening, so that when Garfield goes home, he knows it wasn't his penis being cut off. It was probably a Foley catheter insertion that he was misinterpreting. And the nurses weren't assaulting him. They were doing things to help him get better. And he was agitated. And, and he had lines and tubes put in, putting together that daily record of what's happening. And in this randomized trial, they said, OK, people that, everybody got the diary done. But those that were in the intervention group got access to that diary at one month. Uh, and those that were in the control group didn't get access till later, and they followed up all patients at three months and showed that those that had access to the diary at one month were significantly less likely to have a clinical diagnosis of PTSD um, at the three-month follow-up. And those patients that were exhibiting um, worse symptoms of PTSD at one month were more likely to benefit from this intervention. Some patients read the diary again and again and again, we had family members that say that, that uh, they found that the diary is even helpful for them. We have nursing staff where this is really most common in Northern, Northern Europe that are saying that they think this is a, a really important part of their everyday care for patients is doing this. This is the legacy that they're leaving patients from their ICU stay, access to this diary and a chance to improve patients' uh, mental health after their critical illness. I change gears again and talk about cognitive problems. Specifically, I'm talking about problems with memory, with inattention, with executive function. Garfield not being able to go back to work because he couldn't run those meetings anymore. He couldn't fill out his child's return to school paperwork. You know, these are very common and I think these are probably the less, the least uh, recognized of all the complications that I've talked about. Um, You know, here in one small cohort from Mona Hopkins, the vast majority of patients have cognitive impairment at, at hospital discharge. So as we're asking them to sign consent forms, as we're asking them to, to understand the complex new regimen of medications that we're giving them, we need to recognize a lot of this isn't going to be sinking in. Um, we find that even one year later, patients have important cognitive impairments, and there doesn't appear to be signs of improvement between one and two years. And and you know, it's not just one study. There's a whole series of other studies showing similar things. And and you may say, okay, again, Dale, well maybe the patients that come into the ICU have pre-existing cognitive impairment. Well, there's a couple of studies that that are showing that that it again, where they have prospective baseline measurements in large cohorts, prospective baseline measurements of cognitive functioning. So before the patient's critically ill, they've already measured their cognitive function. And in a couple of these studies that are highlighted here, we see that that these are new impairments that patients are having, and long-lasting impairments that patients are having. You know, here, for example, uh, a four-fold increase in the incidence of moderate to severe cognitive impairment up to eight years later. This recent New England Journal article does really important uh, teaching for us. It shows that when we look at at survivors that were ventilated or were in shock, that one-third and one-quarter respectively, when we look at their cognitive testing a year later, one-third and one-quarter have test scores that are similar to moderate traumatic brain injury and Alzheimer's disease. You know, when somebody has critical illness, do we think, oh, they need to go into a TBI rehab program? We're not thinking about that, but maybe we need to be thinking about that. Um, And they found that the most important factor associated with these cognitive impairments was the duration of delirium. And these impairments happened across age groups. So just being young didn't protect patients from these impairments, as you heard with with Garfield. So so patients that are more likely to have these severe cognitive impairments are gonna be patients that start with less cognitive reserve. You know, if you're starting with an IQ of of 80, you're going to to really market uh, cognitive impairments much more recognized than if you start with an IQ of 150. You know, when you start with 150 and go down to 100, you're probably not gonna be functioning as the same person, but you're gonna be doing your ADLs and your IADLs. Um, Other things to think about, again, hypoglycemia, hypoxemia, hypotension. So we need to be thinking about things in terms of preventing delirium. Maybe that's going to help. And the head bone's connect it to the body bone. That randomized trial I was talking about of early OT and PT showed a 50% reduction in the duration of delirium. We get the patients up and moving, doing functional activities, and all of a sudden their thinking appears to be better as well. We need to be thinking about blood sugars. We don't want them too high, but we don't want to be, be having low blood sugars. Changing gears again, talking about quality of life. We know that patients of impairments have talked about that, but quality of life does seem to get better over time. We don't know if people are just adjusting and saying that things are better when they're not, but, but in this, this interesting study um, from Brian Cuthbertson that followed patients for five years, showed yet, yeah, there was some recovery, but then there was another dip that happened uh, be- between two and a half and five year follow-up, and all the way up to five years, patients still remained lower than population norms. And patients that are more at risk of having impairments in quality of life, the themes are are somewhat the same, older patients, higher severity of illness, and all of these other aspects of post-intensive care syndrome that I've talked about, all of those are associated with impairments in quality of life. There's a single study with with, um, a quality of life primary outcome um, that said in the UK, if we just gave people a simple handbook that told them what to expect during the recovery process, told them that they're gonna have some physical impairments, some cognitive, maybe some psychological problems, and gave them some mechanisms, some self-directed mechanisms for managing this. Patients had improvements in their quality of life in this randomized trial. How does all of this translate into healthcare utilization? So Chris Cox and colleagues had a fantastic study of a subset of patients, patients with prolonged mechanical ventilation, ventilated for for on median one month, but but these patients beforehand were relatively healthy, middle-aged, insured, well-educated. What kind of outcomes did they have? Well, 74% of the survivors needed a post-acute care facility and less than 10% of them were alive without functional dependency at one year, less than 10%. And the mean costs were over $300,000 and it didn't matter what outcome patients had, they all had had, had equally expensive costs. And in our national study of ARDS survivors from across the country, we had about 500 survivors from 41 hospitals, and we found that over half of them required physical rehabilitation, inpatient or outpatient, and, and similarly, half of previously employed survivors were not working just like like all the other studies have shown. Of those that were previously working before their ARDS, a year later, half of them are not back to work, and most of them are saying it's because of the health problems they acquired from their critical illness. And and in the first six months, about a quarter of the patients are coming back to hospital. In the second six months of hospital, or second six months of survival, another quarter are coming back. um, With with non-trivial lengths of stay, as they're re-hospitalized in acute care hospitals, So so in wrap-up then, it's really important for us to recognize these problems aren't going away. We're going to have growing pools of ICU survivors. We need to be thinking about these issues now. We need to be thinking about this in the daily care that we're providing to these patients in order to help avoid this legacy of critical illness, avoid this post-intensive care syndrome with physical, cognitive, and mental health impairments that impact patients' quality of life, return to work, their functioning. We need to think about current evidence-based strategies. And if we were to sort of synthesize across all of them, I'd say we need to think more carefully about our approaches to sedation and delirium. We want our patients to be awake. We want them to know what's happening around them. We want to be, their brain to be functioning. We want them to be able to interact with therapists to, to get their arms and legs out moving as well. We want to avoid both whole, high and low blood sugars. We talked about the early physical rehabilitation and this, this new idea around ICU diaries. And after the ICU, I think if we leave it to somebody else to get these patients better, it's too late. But after the ICU, the recovery's going to go on, and we need to think about helping people understand the recovery process and the continued rehab trajectory that these patients are going to need, the pathway that they're going to need to help them get better. And these just aren't my thoughts. This is from the, the t- five recommendations from ABIM, ABIM in terms of choosing wisely for critical care one of these recommendations that they make from all of these different societies is that we should not be deeply sedating or mechanically ventilated patients unless there's clearly a specific indication and an endotracheal tube's not one of those specific indications. Um, And we should also be lightening sedation daily even in those that we are giving the sedation to. If you're interested, some of this work and, and videos and these things are at our website. Um, We've got a monthly email list with more than 1,200 people from around the world, as far as ICU people and rehab people, that share information around the the latest updates that are happening every single month. If you're interested in that, um, uh, email my secretary. She'll add you to the list. Um, And then we began to think, okay, that's not enough. How often do I get an email? from somebody saying, oh, can you help me with this? And I said, well, in your same city, there's already somebody with expertise in ICU rehab. So we created sort of a network so people know who's got an interest in this area. And then then we started tweeting about this. And I was convinced about tweeting about this when I found out from our ICU rehab conference within 24 hours, we'd reached 22,000 people. I thought, wow, that's a lot better than my email list that only has 1,200 people. So we try to tweet a little bit uh, along with Giora and all, all sorts of other people to say, hey, these are some of the things that are happening. Um, and then finally, We wanted to create a a way so that clinicians could talk to each other, so that all the things didn't go through my email account uh, in order to do this, and we found a free of charge platform that's made for healthcare providers called MedConcert that basically is just a simple version of a Facebook kind of application, um, where again, uh, people can talk to each other. You can post something on the so-called wall or the wire to say, you know, what's your approach to to physical rehab if somebody's got new skin grafts or somebody's got a new trach? Or are you really ambulating people with with femoral cannula with ECMO? Well, in fact, I found a number of sites that are. Um, How do you secure your ECMO catheters when you're ambulating patients? This provides a way for people to communicate. There's about 600 people on this, so there are people that can share their own experiences. And again, my secretary's happy to add clinicians or researchers, No, no vendors are part of these things. It is free of charge. Um, so with that, I appreciate everybody's attention and interest, and I think there's hopefully enough enough time left for a few questions, if there's any. So thank you so much. So, Dr. Hingham, one one question I have is, uh, what do you think the the barriers are to um, effectively implementing all the strategies that that you discussed? Are they Financial? Are they knowledge? Lack of knowledge on the part of providers and and others. Okay, so so the question is: What what are the what are the barriers to this approach to care? That that I not it's not just me that's advocating. Many many people in this room are advocating this, and around the world, what are the barriers to this? I say it's kind of like telling most ICU clinicians that the world is flat, right? You know, most of us grew up unless we go back to when ICUs were first created, where patients were routine. This is before. Propofol existed before intravenous benzodiazepines existed. We know that our patients were awake and moving back then. You know, I'm not sure if anybody in the room was around back then, but every time I lecture and there's senior people in the room, they can say, Dale, yeah, yeah, that was the case. Our patients were awake and moving. But for the younger folks, it's like telling them that the world is flat. We we, we grew up believing that the best care for patients were deeply sedated and, and that they just wouldn't have any bad memories if we kept them deeply sedated. So I think, I think we need to, to challenge ourselves, and hopefully this evidence, as well as these kind of patient anecdotes, will begin to, to challenge our thinking that, that there's no evidence to be supporting the benefits of deep sedation and bed rest. In fact, all the evidence is pointing to the harms. So we need to kind of begin to, to get engaged, and, and then once we've got interest, we can share this sort of evidence, and then we can think as a team What do we need to do? This isn't just doctors that are gonna make it better, or isn't just nurses, it's gonna require all of us as an entire team coming together to consistently change practice. Because if we've got part of the team on board and then the attending physician changes or we've got a different different nurse at night, um, then then we're all gonna take a step backwards. So we need to move this forward as a team. And we need to start with our easiest patients. you Um, You know, the patient with the tracheostomy, why are we sedating them, you know? Um, And and we should be able to get that patient up and moving. And start with some of the easy patients and begin to work up to the more complicated patients. And before you know it, you've got a patient on ECMO that you're ambulating um, and it's completely wide awake and maybe on a treadmill and then all of a sudden, wow, we've really done it. So, So I think it's that kind of stepwise process. And I think many of the things are within our control like sedation. Um, some of those mobility aspects may be harder because we may need expert input of of OTs and PTs, but I think that we can begin to create business cases for that as as we've done showing marked decreases in length of stay, not just at Hopkins, but at several other centers with manuscripts that are in in process as well. It was all crystal clear, huh? (laughs) Sure. So the the question then is is how do we make this trans? I'm going to paraphrase this transition to light sedation. You know, do I have an opinion regarding what what drug we should be using? So you're right. There's lots of opinions because the evidence isn't clear. Um, I think though. That, that we can take a, 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 an approach that makes it more successful. So I think the first part of the approach is is getting rid of the myth that when the endotracheal tube comes in, the infusions of any sedative product need to start. Those two things are not linked together. You don't, if the tube goes in, you don't need to be having those. So I think, because there's no sedation to interrupt if you didn't start the infusion to start with. Um, and I'm gonna share with you our approach in my ICU that, that's a, ICU-wide approach and is protocolized and we have published about. It's not the right approach, it's just one approach. So we don't start continuous infusions just because an endotracheal tube goes in. We start with with PRN, we give patients what they actually need. And based on a a randomized trial that was done by Thomas Strom, published in, in The Lancet, We start with with analgesics before we add on any sort of sedative medication. So in my ICU it happens to be fentanyl, so we start with PRN boluses of fentanyl because we know that when you wake up from your paralytic, you are you know, within a few minutes you're not going to say, oh, that tube feels wonderful. Um, So so what we found, though, is that the vast majority of patients don't need access to benzodiazepines, don't need access to propofol, don't need dexmedetomidine if we're giving them adequate doses of analgesic. And I'm talking about in a medical ICU. I recognize that if you've had a major trauma or a laparotomy, you're gonna need analgesic to deal with that pain as well. But we start with PRN doses of of narcotics, and we found that the majority of our patients, that's all they need. And some may go on and get an infusion of 25 mics an hour of fentanyl or 50, but many of them aren't even getting infusions. They're awake, they're alert, they've got an endotracheal tube, they're writing to communicate, some of them are ambulating. And that works for the majority of our patients, but not every patient. Um, and then if we need to add on a sedative, again we would add it on in a and bolus sort of manner, in my ICU at least, we rarely use, use propofol, we would do and boluses of, of, uh, of Versed if, if uh, the narcotic alone wasn't enough. Um, and then we find it's really only a small subset of our patients where we aren't able to manage, uh, say agitated delirium, um, and, and we would add on dexmedetomidine. So that's just one approach. Yeah. So, so you're, you're absolutely right. So the comment was that it's, it's very difficult for for nurses to buy into this because as my own nurses taught me, they said that the best ICU patient is a comatose orphan, right? (laughs) So, So, so we all know that that's a really horrible joke to say, but but we need to recognize that this has to be a team effort. Um, how did we create that culture change? I've got data showing that our patients routinely were at a RAS score of minus four, meaning they had no response to verbal stimulation. We now know that those same patients in my ICU have a RAS score of, of minus one, meaning that they maintain an uh, eye contact for more than 10 seconds. How did we make that change? We made it as a structured systemic project process where nurses were part of the team and in fact, between myself and the MICU director, we had 16 small group meetings with our nurses to begin to say, this is why it's important, how do you think we should do this? And we, we played with our approach to sedation before we made it into a protocol to see that it would actually work. But it required a lot of communication, a lot of teamwork, um, and we needed nurses to be on the same team as us. And there's always gonna be early adopters. We had nurse champions that helped disseminate this throughout our group of nurses. But it, but it is a different approach and it, it, it does require more time and more effort Maybe, maybe up front, but once the patient's actually awake and can move, all of a sudden, the patient can turn themselves in bed. The patients all of a sudden have a greater amount of independence, and in some ways, the, the nursing workload in some ways can get easier. I have to to talk to Great, my pleasure, thank you.